Hey everyone, welcome to episode 15 of the podcast. This time, singer-songwriter Becca Stevens enters the vibe chamber. But before that happens, I want to let you guys all know that this is a video podcast as well. The show is streamed live to YouTube right as it's happening. So if you want to see full archived episodes, clips from the show, or you want to see when I'm going to be live next, you can check out the vibe chamber on YouTube.com. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Stevens, how's it going? Good. How are you doing, Scotty? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, where are you coming to us from? You come from the city? Um, I'm in Bed-Stuy. My apartment is here in Brooklyn with my husband, whose music window is just across the, you know, how these Brooklyn buildings have like weird <laughs> brick circles in the middle. So I can see him playing his viola just across the way. Are you off the C train or the C train or the A train? Yeah, the C. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, I'm off. Uh, I'm right off uh, Fulton Street, off Kingston. Ah, cool. Neighbors. Yeah. Um. So I have a bunch of things I want to ask you, but I want to go back and kind of go through all through your career. Um. So first, I want to know where are you from originally? Um, North Carolina, Winston Salem. How's the music scene in, in North Carolina? Were you starting music at a really young age? I had a particularly rich musical upbringing in my family nucleus. Um, my mom and dad were and are both musicians. And by the time I was born, the family already had a family band called the Tune Mammals, which is, um, we recently put our uh, tapes, we made a tape in 1989 and then another tape, am I getting this right? Oh, another, there was one in 1986 or seven, and then another one in 1990. And then we recently put them on CD and put them on Spotify. So you can hear what I was doing when I was like a little baby. Um, and then aside from my family who, um, you know, we listened to a lot of music and performed a lot of music. There's a really great um, Appalachian bluegrass an Irish folk scene in North Carolina, um, which I got really into in my early years. And then also when I was a teenager, I got into the jazz scene there in Winston-Salem. Um, there's a, an art school in Winston-Salem called North Carolina School of the Arts that has a lot of really great musicians. And that's where I studied classical guitar in high school. Um, so yeah, there, I think there's a really great scene there. Um, obviously, great classical music, symphony, and I was happy. How long did you play with your parents' band, with the Tune Mammals? Until I was about eight years old, and I'm the youngest of three, so it lasted for a while. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, it was the kind of thing where we would rehearse at night during the week sometimes, and then go out and do shows on the weekends in the minivan, um, mostly during the summer, but sometimes during a school year too. And there were even a couple times where we flew cross country as a family to do um, performances of musicals that my dad wrote for us to perform that, um, you know, sometimes we would do a show where it was like the first set was a performance of this musical that he wrote. And then the second set was two mammals or, um, He's also a classical composer, so we would perform the little kids singing parts and symphonies that he wrote and stuff like that. It was very, it was a very busy, rich musical upbringing, I have to say. 
Let me read a couple lyrics back to you. Now, tell me, tell me who wrote this, because I think that this is my favorite Toon Mammals lyric. I wet my pants, but I'm sorry. <laughs> I wet my pants, but I'm sorry. The sound that you hear is it squishing, squishing in my shoes. I wet my pants, but I'm sorry. Is that your father's work? That's my dad. That's like his uh, sort of musical expertise in a nutshell. No, I'm just kidding. He's like, he's a brilliant, brilliant composer, multi-instrumentalist, but um, you give him like a, a funny hook and he'll turn it into a poem in five seconds. That's a perfect example. And at what point did you start? Because you ended up touring nationally with Secret Garden. How did you get that job and, and when did that come about? Yeah, so um, like I said, we were doing a lot of performing as a family and that included... Um, a lot of musicals growing up, like we did Christmas Carol every year. I I was in um, Sound of Music when I was like four. I played Gretel and, you know, we, we were just, we were doing a lot of stuff. And um, at that time, my mom was at North Carolina School of the Arts getting her master's degree in opera. And she met a director who was, this is when I was nine years old. She met a director named Vicki Bussert, who was taking the Broadway show, Secret Garden, on, on the road, off-Broadway, an off-Broadway tour. And um, I can't remember how they knew each other. Maybe Vicki directed something that my mom did. But my mom mentioned that she had two daughters that were like around the age that the lead would be. And at that time, my sister and I were, do, were in the preparatory ballet program at North Carolina School of the Arts. And we both auditioned and um, she, I was offered the role of Mary and my sister was offered the role as my understudy. And she was like, no thanks, I'll focus on my ballet career. And then she went on to become a professional ballet dancer. And then I went on the road with my mom who played Lily, um, which is the, the ghost of Mary's dead aunt. And she like sits in a picture frame and sings beautiful high stuff. Um, and yeah, we spent like nine months doing that more actually, including the three months of rehearsal where we were in, in Chicago rehearsing for a while. And a tour like that is something that could exhaust, you know, a, a, an adult. So, you know, being so young was like the extensive tour, like was the workload overwhelming for you since you were so young or, or were you able to just kind of naturally adapt to it? I'm sure I got tired out, but it was so long ago. My memory of it is all just being like <laughs> all the time. I'm so excited. And, um, I, the stuff that I remember struggling with was, um, the bus schooling. Like we had a, a teacher who came on the road with us. So it was me, the guy who played Colin, which is the other kid character in the show. And then the, my understudy. <clears throat> and so that it was just the three of us. And we would sit literally in the back of like a Greyhound bus next to the bathroom. And the teacher was teaching us everything that, that we need to learn. I think we were all in fifth grade and, um, or fourth grade, nine years. Yeah. Cause when I, when I came back out, I, I don't remember fourth or fifth grade. And it was, it was hard because you have these big spikes. Of, I mean, I still, well, not this year, but I still struggle with this as an adult when you go on the road and you're performing all the time and you have spikes of energy and excitement. And then you have these crashes, like emotional crashes, um, which is particularly hard when you're on the road because you're not sleeping well. And I remember struggling with that as a kid and 
having sort of like a short attention span, um, especially being car sick in a bus or, or learning in a hotel room. It was just very strange. Um, but we managed and, um, I just remember I never got tired of performing that show on stage. It, it, it was always exciting. And, and I loved being around all the, um, all the adults, like all the, the grown up artists and, um, it was a special time. I have fond memories of that time. And I think it probably helped me a lot with sort of my relationship with, with traveling and, and work ethic that I still have today. And so after that tour ends, are you immediately like, okay, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And from that point on, you start working? No. Um, when that tour, that the, the period after that tour is like the darkest time of my um, adolescent life. Like I, I came back to school and all the people that I thought were my friends no longer wanted to talk to me and I couldn't understand why. And- um, Was it jealousy? I think that's what it was. Now looking back as an adult, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. And I actually had a conversation with one of them as an adult years and years later and she confirmed that. And, um, but at the time I just, you know, as a, as a 10 year old girl, 11, I guess, 10 or 11 year old girl, fifth grade is a traumatic time for little girls. And, um, you know, you've got puberty and the, the like popularity stuff and all, all these struggling with sort of like finding your identity as a, a young adult. And, um, and thank God there wasn't social media. I don't think I would have been able to handle it. But at the time I remember really struggling with the transition of coming from that, um, to sort of regular life. And my, um, my parents split up right then too. So it was just like, wow, you know, it was so, so different. Um, and, uh, I actually, you were asking if, if that sort of clarified my path forward. I, I decided then I remember saying to my dad, like, I just want to be a regular kid for a while. Cause I felt like what I had done in the other direction had, had, um, sort of like made me uncool or something and made me weird. And, um, it wasn't until, so I, I, I started to get the itch again in high school. I went to boarding school for a couple of years in New Jersey and was hoping to focus on um, like theater and musical theater again then, but it didn't really pan out. And then it wasn't until <clears throat> I switched, I transferred to North Carolina School of the Arts for classical guitar, which was kind of a random choice at the time. I wasn't much of a guitar player that I realized this, this I could focus on forever, like just music. I don't need the theatrical part at all. And I even surprised myself because, um, that just hadn't been where my head was at, but, um, just this, this, like being totally immersed simply in the music was like, ah, this is, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to focus my energy on. And from there you end up jumping and going to the new school. Is that, am I following the timeline correctly? Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say, and maybe you can relate to this being you're in jazz school now, right? At the yeah, new I'm, school. I'm in my last, I'm about to start in a couple of days, my last semester at the new school. Ooh, that's exciting yeah. and, and, and must be weird to do it online. Um, it's, it's a that? very weird thing. We had a little bit, uh, the last, um, let's see, what would it have been, uh, spring semester of 2020, 
the maybe last half of it was online and that was strange and it was because they were they were very relaxed about it because it was a new thing and then the last semester they were kind of getting more in their uh, uh kind of feeling out the the vibe of of, of making an online school um the, the the i i don't i don't hate it it's definitely not the best way to go to the new school because i love my teachers and that's some, one of the best parts you, you know this is sitting around like on the fifth floor and having the teachers go by and you talk to everybody exactly. that's the one thing i miss about it but besides that online school is not too bad Ugh, I can't imagine, though, like being on your computer all day like that and um, not being able to hug your friends and play in a play in a practice room with another human being. And I, I, I um, yeah, my heart my heart goes out to all the students right now. But um, <clears throat> oh, I just realized my my USB mic is not plugged in. Is, is it's my okay. audio OK? No, you sound fine. Sounds great. OK. All right. It would have been better. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, I think every, everyone's so used to, you know, Zoom things nowadays that I don't think anyone is. I mean, the, the Tonight Show was on Zoom for six months. You know what I mean? I think people are more adjusted to it now. Yeah. Anyway, continue. Well, you, can, you can really hear the room. Yeah. Um, so you starting your final year, I wonder if you're starting to get that itch of like you're maybe... And maybe it's totally different for you, but for me at that point, I was craving everything other than jazz because I was like oversaturated in jazz. I had that itch since that? halfway through my first semester as a freshman. <laughs> okay. So then you could probably also relate to, so when I was studying classical guitar, that was when I got fixated on jazz. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? So like as artists as humans we were like we have this grass is greener mentality or like you, you get you get fixated on the thing that's the opposite of where you are um and that happened to me when i was studying classical guitar i was there was so much structure and then when i would listen to a jazz record i was like this is it you know mm -hmm. um and so i got i took a year off between high school and college and was like getting really into jazz and singing in a rock band and um, playing rhythm guitar in the rock band. And at that time, um, I, I had a lot of like in injuries in my arms from practicing too much. And I didn't think that the this sort of pipe dream that I had of writing my own music and singing it and performing it on stage with guitar, I didn't think it was possible. Mm -hmm. But I did think like, wow, it would be so nice to go to jazz school and just focus on my voice for a while because it's been a while since I've just been a singer. So I applied to new school, got in, and then around my second year there, that was when I um, picked up the guitar again. What was it that made you want to make that jump from North Carolina to a place like Manhattan? Um, my sister lived in Manhattan at the time. Um, and also my mom had lived in Manhattan for a year. She actually lived in Staten Island, but we, we used to go to Manhattan. This was after Secret Garden. We would go into the city and do auditions and stuff. And um, I just always loved it, the energy of uh, everything around me. Like I, I found it so exciting and terrifying in, in like a really fun way. And I... Also, because of the jazz scene in New York, I, I, I felt like it was the right place to be. 
So I didn't even apply anywhere else. I just sort of put all my eggs in that basket. And I did the exact same thing. And everyone, I mean, I, everyone at the new school, that I, like all my friends, butchered me for it because I basically really? just got lucky. Because if it, if I didn't get in, I didn't know what I was going to do. Same, yeah. I think probably if I hadn't gotten in, I would have taken another year off or something. But um, I just, it, if the location is such an important part of the decision, then it's like, why even apply somewhere else? You know? Yeah. Um, but that was the case for me. I really wanted to be there and I wanted to be like in, in the heart of it all. Um, would you say that the school itself was, had a bigger impact on your, your musicianship more than just the experience of living in the city? Cause I noticed that I, no, I love the new school. I've had incredible teachers like Rory Stewart, Richard Bucas, you know, great guys. Yeah. Um, um, but a huge impact for me was just seeing people in the city and at the level that they were that I had never experienced because I'm, I'm from the country. So, you know, coming here and seeing all these people playing at such a high level all the time, no matter where you went, really was a, a big factor for me. And I don't know, would you say that you had a similar experience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say it, it was a combination between the experiences of of going to shows, watching people perform and being totally immersed in the, um, in the oh, jazz scene. Becca, give me one oh. second. I think we, yeah. uh, sorry. I think, uh, we just got a disconnection real quick. You, uh, you were like skipping for a second, but I still heard what you said. Okay. Give me, uh, sorry. I just want to make sure we, we get what you say. Uh, this is why New York city internet, you know, no matter what you do, sometimes it just is, is miserable. <laughs> what are you going to do? What are you gonna do? Exactly. Give me one second. Let me just make. <laughs> let me just make sure we're on before I keep talking, so people don't just see a free, frozen frame. Uh, come on. Was I skipping? No, it's it's the it's I I can hear you clearly. It's sending information out on my end that for some reason, no matter what I do, I spend all this time. I spend days, you know, wiring stuff up. You know, it's at the oh end no, of the day. you're frozen again. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Um, I'm going to plug in my USB while you get that together and wait till you hear how different this sounds. Okay. Oh. Okay. Is this louder? Okay, I can hear you. Wait, can you say something? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, sounds great. Okay. Um, Is it too loud? No, it sounds great. I also have a, a compressor and EQ and stuff running on this end, so. Nice. Okay, can you hear me clearly? I can, yeah. Okay, let's hope to God that I'm gonna, I'm gonna, if I, I'm gonna curse Optimum for the rest of my life. <laughs> okay. Um, um, we so were talking I, about. Yeah, how whether or not this, the the new school itself or just living in such a, a music centric city like like New York had a, a bigger effect on your your musicianship. Yeah, um, I would say it was a, a total, definitely a balance between. The time I spent immersed in the the jazz scene in New York, and then the people that I met at the new school, both teachers and students, um, people who I developed musical relationships with, and um, and the stuff that was crammed into my brain during that time from my experiences, uh, both as a student and as as a collaborator, and then also what this is a a, a third aspect that I think is really important, or at least was for me, um, what being in an environment with, um, a densely populated environment of people who are like you 
forces you to kind of do to survive in your own um, identity. Like you, you, you're, you're forced to figure out, wait, who am I? And, and what makes me different than everyone else? Because, um, you know, when you're a, a lone wolf in a small town, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so different and I've got my stuff figured out. And then suddenly you're in this big pool of people who are all doing similar stuff. It forces you to see um, the finer detail of that sort of soul search. Mm-hmm. I totally agree about that. That's a very similar experience to me. And so after college, after you graduate the new school, what year is that? Uh, seven, 2007. Okay, so then a, a year later, you come out with the record T by C. And, and that's as the leader of the Becca Stevens band. Was that an established mm-hmm. group before the album came out? Or did you make it just to, so you could make that record? So during my sophomore year, it was 2005, I started putting a band together out of classmates and 2006 we played our first gig at Mo Pitkins and then um 2007 my senior recital was all original music which was a surprise even to me um with that band Mm -hmm. and by then Liam uh Robinson had moved to Manhattan School of Music but everyone else was still uh Actually, some of them had graduated, but everyone else had graduated from the new school. Um, it was Tommy Crane, Chris Tordini, Colin Killalay, and Liam Robinson. And then um, after I graduated, we thought, you know, let's record this stuff that we've been working on and playing. And, and that's when we made TYC. And then who would you say, like, on that record were your main compositional inspirations? Ooh, so that one's tricky because... When I put the band together, I did it in a way I'd been avoiding it for a really long time, right? Mm-hmm. For a long for a long period of time I thought I wasn't physically capable. And then when I got over that, I thought I wasn't like mentally or 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 um musically capable, you know? Um and I kept putting it off and saying like, oh, I don't have enough songs together. I don't have a band. I don't have this. I don't have that. I would have to practice a lot. And my friend Kelly, who um, lived close to me at the time and was my best friend at the new school, we used to get together and have these like artist's way um, inspiration chats. Do you know the artist's way? I do it? not. I was going to hold up the book. Here it is. Um, we were. It's a workbook. And okay. I've started it a million times. Um, still need to finish it <laughs> 20 years later. Um, but we would get together and like open a bottle of wine and talk about our goals and plans in life. And um, at a certain point, she said to me, just book the gig, like book the gig and the rest of the stuff you'll have to get together, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so long story short, I booked the gig and then I solidified the band and then I started scrambling to find songs that I'd written that had you know that covered you know the last five to seven years of my life like there were songs on um TYC that I wrote when I was 15 15 or 16 um there was a song so in the midst I think I wrote during my first year of college lullaby I wrote when I was 
maybe 15 years old. You know, it was like a, it was sort of a, a, um, a grab bag of things that I'd written over a long period of time. So, um, so as far as like a concept, that record is the far, farthest thing I have from having an overarching compositional concept or even an overarching like pool of people that I was inspired by. That said, around that time, um, I had come out of like a period in middle school of listening to a lot of Tori Amos. Um, right after that, and this never ended, um, Bjork. Mm-hmm. And right around that time or right after that time, Radiohead. And then also, I'm sure some of my jazz influences got in there. Um, maybe a little Joni Mitchell. Um, and I would even give like people like Jane Ira Bloom some credit. Um, there's a song called Off the Chart that I wrote for her class. And there was a song called, oh, In the Midst was written for Rory Stewart's Advanced rhythmic concepts. That was sort of like a kill two birds with one stone assignment where I was like, instead of writing something with a bunch of crazy meters that I will never end up playing again, I'm going to write something that I could actually see myself playing. And to this day, that's the song from that record that still gets played. I love Rory's story. He's an incredible Me person. Me too. And his He's class, you're, you're like, honestly, you're like the, the golden child of his rhythm class because he'll, you know, he talks... Do you remember when he do you remember how he gives you the the thing at the beginning of the class and he says like this is the level that you think you are you know kind of evaluate yourself and then when the class is over you talk about you write down what you think you are now and you can kind of see your differences did he do that for you uh, that does ring a bell yeah okay well when he did that he always he would always say stuff like he'd be like yeah you know so i, I have you know all these people like you know glasper Becca Stevens was in this class. I, I, every class I had, he always mentioned, he's like, Becca Stevens. So you must have been amazing in that class because I, I, I heard your name in, in every one. He must be, I think he really respects you. I love Rory so much. He's such an amazing, um, he was definitely one of my favorite teachers, if not my favorite teacher at the new school, but also just as a person, he's so humble and mindful, like so focused. He and... Richard Harper mm-hmm. took my breath away with like how how much energy and how much mindfulness they brought to every day of teaching. Mm-hmm. We used to joke that Rory was like not human, you know, because he'd come in having ran, ran from the George Washington Bridge down to the new school and then at the end of at the end of the day of like teaching for however many hours, he'd wave to everybody in the doorway and then just go off running back to the GW bridge. You know, I had him on my, my podcast about, oh, geez, a month and a half ago, maybe two months ago. And we talked for we talked for a while. First of all, he's stupidly smart in ways I that know. I didn't even know. Like he's a, like, uh, uh, not virtual reality. What's the word? Like at com- computer stuff, coding, uh, marine biology. All this stuff I never knew about him, but that story about the running from the bridge. Right. If I remember correctly, it I remember that that spread around the school. I mean, when I when my freshman year, it was like, do you hear Rory Stewart? He runs he runs from the <laughs> George W. Bridge every day, and that's why he comes into class like this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and still in his running, still in his running gear, and then you look in the trash can, and it's just all protein bar wrappers. <laughs> like, like I never saw him eat an actual meal. He would just like kind of 
step aside and like insert protein bar into mouth and then keep going. <laughs> Did he ever, when, when you were there, because we kind of always joke about how the fact that whenever he'd play a rhythm, he wouldn't just like tap a rhythm. He would beat the crap out of his <laughs> yeah, chest as yeah. hard as possible. <laughs> totally. And he always had the, these like really funky like mouth subdivisions in there uh-huh. too when he's doing it. Yep. Um, like <laughs> like yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I love that, man. Um, Me too. So going back to you. So uh, after T by C, you know, there's a uh-huh. couple years between that and the second record, Weightless. Um, did you make any specific stylistic improvements that you specifically wanted to showcase on the second record because you didn't think that you were fully, they were fully realized, you know, a few years prior? So stylistically, um, the first thing that pops into my head was production. Um, so rather than like sort of a musical sensibility, it was more of a, a thoughts on production. Um, and I'll break that down a little bit. So with TYC, we went to this studio in New Jersey um, that was run by the son of Tony Bennett called Bennett Studios in Inglewood. I can't believe I remember the I think it was in Inglewood, New Jersey. Um, and we kind of just like like we didn't have a, a producer. So I guess technically I was producing it, even though I didn't even know what that meant at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just had the keys to the castle like we were just I booked the time and then we let the songs build in whatever way was sort of serving the songs to the best of our ability. And um, because of that and because we were young and excited and, and didn't have a very clear cut plan, we ended up getting really excited about overdubs and, and layers and all these sounds and stuff. And so going into Weightless, I wanted to challenge myself to go in and only record the sounds that we could play live as a band or that we did play live at the band because at that time we'd already toured these songs quite a bit um, in my station wagon. Um, and so we went in and I think we were, we only booked like three or four days at, um, at Sear Sound in New York. And we recorded everything live with the exception of maybe like a couple vocal fixes. And um, I don't think I did any background vocals. All the background vocals were done by Chris, Liam, and um, Gretchen Parlato came in and, and sang on a couple songs. And that was it. You know, it was like a polar opposite of the style of how we recorded um, T by C. And because of that also, you have instead of like um, starting and getting a drum track you like and then adding the bass and then adding the keys and then, you know, it was everyone was playing together. And so it had more of this um, living, breathing feeling or uniform. Um, Are you happy that's the first thing that comes to mind? Are you happy you made those changes uh, in hindsight in terms of how you approach the record? I mean, I'm I'm a believer that um, whether in writing or creating a work of art or recording something in the studio, you follow whatever your soul is calling for at that time and you follow whatever the, the music is calling for at that time. And that was just what was being sort of requested by my inspiration and by my muse. So yeah, I'm really happy I I did that um, because that became 
that became the the honest sound of that period of the music, you know? And that's that's the best you can do. I mean, that that's not to say that I think that that's the right choice always. Obviously, I don't feel that way because the records I've made since then have been way more produced than T by C, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and, and then after Weightless, uh, this is, now we're going to about 2015, you come out with Perfect Animal. And that has your version yeah. of, of Higher Love on that. Was that a spontaneous decision to cover it? Or did you kind of have to wait a few albums, you know, into your discography so you could, you know, easily clear it? Because, you know, clearing a song of, of, of that popularity is not always the easiest task. So that was the last song that I added to that. Um, uh, what's the name of the list of songs? Tracklist? Like, Thank you. Is that, is, I don't know. <laughs> sure. Uh, sequence was the word I was looking for. Um, but uh, I, I remember I, I was mapping everything out on a spreadsheet in my apartment, and I knew that I wanted to add a song. I, I knew already that I needed something upbeat because there was um, – I was looking at the overall shape, and there was a lot of this, and I needed something in the, in the sequence to kind of bring things up and um, boost the vibe. And at the time, I'd been getting into taking my own sort of um, perspective on different covers. Um, and oftentimes, it would just be a matter of like going to Dwayne Reed and hearing something on the radio or hearing something on the radio in the car and having this sort of nostalgic um, spark that goes off where you're like, this is a good song. This has always been a good song. And it could be cool to put my own spin on this, you know, as simple as that. Um, And so I was looking for something upbeat and I thought maybe it would be cool to have this last song be another cover. And then literally was like at the pharmacy and I heard that on the radio and I was like, oh my God, I remember this. Um, And I was listening to it and I was like, geez, this song is long. Like there's so many sections. There's at least two bridges and um, the the music is just great. There's so much material there. And so I saw it as a good challenge and then started to kind of map it out in GarageBand. Mm. And, and talking about that, that record, the first track on that, as I asked, which would, would later become the first track on Family Dinner Part 2 by Snarky Puppy. How do you get connected with Michael League? And, and when does he come to talk to you about, you know, you being a featured artist on that record? So here's a fun name drop. Um, Snarky Puppy actually opened for me uh, in 2008 or nine, I think, at Bowery Poetry Club. So my band was headlining, which is crazy to me that like this multi Grammy award winning um, super band opened for me way back then. But I knew those guys you know, I, I'd known them, I'd been on the scene with them and I'm, I'm the same age as Mike. So we've been sort of doing this for, um, Mm -hmm. um, crossing paths and seeing each other at festivals and shows and in New York and stuff for however many years that is 13, 14. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I remember thinking like, wow, these guys are really nice. And, um, and their band is cool and I like them, you know. And then I heard through the grapevine about the Layla Hathaway ground up family dinner number one Grammy. Um, And then 
I got a phone call from Mike um, when I was babysitting uh, my niece and nephew in New York City. We were at a toy store, and I remember I was like keeping an eye on them while having this call with Mike, and he was like, do you want to be a featured guest on Family Dinner Volume 2. And I was like, fuck yes. And I was like, oops, you know. <laughs> in the kid's store, in the toy store with all the children. <laughs> yeah. It was like, um, and on that same phone call, which probably was like a four minute long phone call, he was like, so I was thinking, you know, a couple things from Perfect Animal. Do you have any suggestions? And I was like, maybe I asked would be cool. And he was like, I was thinking that one too. And then maybe Be Still as a bonus track. And I was like, that sounds awesome. And it was done. Like the all the business was done in like four minutes at a toy store. And then the next, um, the next thing he sent me like a a demo that he'd made on Logic of his arrangement. I approved it. Um, and then I came to New Orleans and played it with the band and they already all knew their parts and it was, you know, seamless. Like everything that Mike does, it's so, so seamless. He's so quick and efficient. Amazing. Were there any changes that he made in, in, in the arrangement of I asked that you weren't like totally confident about or, or maybe some changes that you maybe had wished that you had done in the original? Yeah, the, uh, there was a a meter that he changed in one place because he felt like it was important that people could dance um, without switching feet. And I had a really hard time with that because part of my um, part of my practicing is getting my songs to a place where I'm no longer trying to think if it was deep but deep but da but da deep da deep I think that was the part that he cha- uh oh no, no 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 it was um it was mm, that's all I need he added a beat instead of where I had like uh, skipped a beat there and I I had a really hard time getting it in my fingers because when I practice I try to get my guitar part to a place where I don't have to think about it at all so that it's just um, choreography that's dialed into my body so that I'm I'm using it as like a just this platform for me to focus more on the like the heavenly nether regions of vocal shit you know mm-hmm. um, and so Anytime something gets changed that I've played live on stage or in the studio hundreds of times, then it's like, I'll be like, okay, yeah, yeah, I got it. I'll do that. And then once I'm in performance headspace, it's like practical thought just goes out the window. But we ended up, we ended up keeping that. Um, Yeah, it's on the Snarky Puppy version. And then there was um, that just nasty bass line that he wrote that I wish I wrote. Um, Boom. DB don't that he plays on the Moog yeah yeah um and I loved the 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 outro drum solo um I thought that the mm mm-hmm the like group mm mm-hmmms worked as a really nice background for that but yeah no it's also cool just to have a totally different version of that song out in the world and during that that same time that's when you you meet David Crosby right actually yeah um like literally while I was practicing that song with the band, he was sitting behind me with his wife and 
Um, so he and Jan Crosby were sitting in the, like sort of in the perimeter of the room for every single artist's rehearsal, as far as I could tell. Um, which I think is the mark of like the kind of people that they are, um, and the kind of musician that David is. He's always hungry. He, you know, at 78 or however old he is years old, um, he's not trying to just settle in and as he would say it, sit back and turn on the fog machine and play the hits. He's mm -hmm. hungry. He's an artist. He wants to take in new things. And so he listened to everyone. And um, at the time I knew his face and I knew his name and that he was a famous person, but that was about it. Like everyone was like, whoa, David Crosby's here. And I, I didn't really, I didn't really know what that meant because I grew up with a totally different kind of music with my family, like a lot of Irish folk music and classical music and world music and other weird stuff. But we weren't listening to like Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young or the Beatles or anything that um, would have been like the normal stuff that other people in my parents' generation would listen to. Um, so he came up, at, he came up behind me and tapped me on the shoulder and I knew who he was and still felt star, starstruck just from like knowing who he was, but you know, wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't about to like be like, I love this song, you know? And I think he, he liked that initially that, that I wasn't like blowing smoke or anything. But the first thing he said to me, which I'll never forget, he tapped me on the shoulder and he was like, you're a fucking weirdo. <laughs> I was like, thank you, David Crosby. And then he immediately <laughs> said, we should write something together. And I was like, okay, I'm super down. And um, I sort of assumed that nothing would happen of it, but surely enough, it did. And you end up singing background for him and, and writing music with him for the next, you know, years after that record comes out. Yeah, I mean, it was background, I guess you could say, for that first tour. Um, but he sent me a bunch of lyrics. I set one of them to music. It's called By the Light of Common Day on his record Lighthouse. And um, Mike produced that record and invited Michelle Willis and I to sing on it. And when they were listening back in the mixes, it's the only song on that record that the four of us are on. But David was like, there's something about the blend of these four people. I want this to be the, the road band for this record. So we went on the road playing the music from that record. I was playing various guitars, singing background and some lead. Same with Mike and Michelle. And then David decided after that tour that he wanted the Lighthouse Band, instead of it being like a David Crosby band with these other people accompanying him, that he wanted it to be more of a collaborative band, like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, but also nothing like that. Um, and so we made another record where all of us did the writing together and all of us were like leading it together. And mm -hmm. then we did a tour on that record as well. And what year was that? Here, if you listen, I think came out 2017, mm -hmm. but you can look it up. It's somewhere around then. Okay. And then, oh, wait a minute. Give me one second, Becca. Mm -hmm. I'm getting, I, I think Zoom is freezing for me. Rip, dip, do, 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 do. Okay. Here, I'll hold up this picture while we, while we wait. <laughs> this is us on stage sound checking Crosby's band. 
Wow. Now that's that's a piece of memorabilia to have in front of you when you're when you're working. Yeah, photo by Jeffrey Parrish. Shout out. Okay, give me one second and then then I'll ask you one more thing. Mm-hmm. Come on, Optimum, do it for me. Okay, I think we're good now. I apologize awesome. for that. No worries. Um, okay, so you work with David Crosby, and then in 2020, you released two albums, or you released two albums, Wonder Bloom, as well as Palette on Your Floor, which is with Elon Meller. Um, the first came out right as the coronavirus was hitting the United States, and the latter came out just under a month ago. How long were you working on the second record throughout the year, and and did the way that the pandemic was kind of hitting the states that affect any part of of the process for recording it um were you able to do things in the studio were most things remote how did how'd you go about making that record so for palette on your floor um <laughs> it's it's funny because elon and i had actually recorded that at least a year prior maybe more Oh, okay. long before COVID was even a whisper in our ears. And um, at that time, it was just this private event for a couple of the supporters of the um, the music label that he runs called Nouvelle, which used to just be subscriber-based, vinyl-only music label. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea was that this performance we did in the studio was... Um, like a a gift to these like you know high paying subscribers of the label and uh so there were three people sitting in the studio with us and he and I showed up with a book of ballads that we like um he and I have been playing music together for like 15 years or something like that and we hadn't played for a long time but as he puts it, it was sort of like, we, you know, we showed up with no rehearsal and we didn't even get much time to like catch up with each other aside from a quick hug. And as we were playing, it felt like we were having this conversation and, and catching up and being like, oh, you've been doing that. Oh, wow. And that, oh, okay, cool. You know, it, it was very, um, it was very spur of the moment. There was no planning that went into it, no rehearsal. And um, it, we couldn't overthink things because there was an audience in the room with us. And also there was no plan whatsoever to release it. And then about a year later, Elon was playing it in a listening session for some people through the label. And as he was listening to it, he was like, whoa, this is kind of good. And he texted me and said, I think that thing we did a year ago is kind of good. Do you want to listen to it? And I listened to it and I said, yeah, I really like it. And he said, should we just put it out? And I was like, sure. <laughs> December works in my schedule because there's nothing going on then. And it was, it was so like the opposite of Wonder Bloom, which I spent eight months off and on in the studio recording with all these different collaborators and blood, sweat, and tears. And this was just like an afterthought, you know? Mm-hmm which is cool that um, it was cool to have that kind of experience um, and to remember that record making can be easy. Are you, are you working on a next uh, big studio album that you're going to do once we can finally get back to normal in terms of playing with musicians again? I would say yes. I've been writing um, and I have a lot of ideas. Um, I sort of see what the next one will be, but still in the, like incubation phase and the 
inspiration phase, I would say. Well, I'm excited to see. I'll, yeah. I'll be I'll be waiting. Um, but oh, back. What? There's another. There's another record that's coming before that. That's my music with string quartet, which that is coming out in March. March. And Do then, you have a, a specific day? Yeah. Twenty sixth on March twenty sixth. And then also this year, I'm um, releasing a record with the Secret Trio on Ground Up, and that's me and Mike League and um, a trio of Turkish and Macedonian musicians. And also um, an album with Louis Cato, Justin Stanton, who you spoke with before, Mike League, and Gisela Joao, um, incredible singer, songwriter. And that's a a collaboration that we did back in... um, the summer of 2020, the only time I managed to get out of the country. Um, we It's all original music that we wrote together. And so that's coming out this year, too. So there's no rush for me to put out another Yeah, you're, you're, you're busy enough as it is. <laughs> hey, well, right. Becca, I want to yeah. say thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Um, so uh, everyone, also everyone who's listening, I apologize if we had some internet issues. There's nothing I can do about it. I try my best. But uh, Becca, thank you for your time. Stay safe. Um, and to, to everyone listening. Uh, Sponsored by Optimum. Yes. Okay. Optimum, if you are listening to this, I despise you. Okay. Come to my house. You know, they were, they were going to charge me. I said, I, I, I said to them, I said, hey, I uh, spent like three days talking to them. And I said, I've been doing stuff for hours. I've been wiring things, resetting things. And I still, the internet cuts out. So I, I, I said to the guy, I, I chatting with him, and he says, okay, we're going to send someone to your house. That he says, or would you like someone to come to the house? That, and that's all they said. And I said, yes, schedule a date. Then we get a call the day before that there may be charges. And I look it up, and it's $80 an hour unless they know that it's their fault. So if he comes here and says, oh, yeah, uh, if he's here for two hours and he says, I, I can't find anything wrong with it, I'm out 160 bucks for a service I paid $90 a month for anyway. So Optimum, I don't like you. You could just edit together all of the disruptions in this interview and sit him down and make him watch it. And then he'll <laughs> know that you're not lying. And then just hope he doesn't charge me for the hour. Okay. Thank you, Becca. I appreciate yeah, it. Thank exactly. you to everyone listening. And uh, I'll see you in a couple of days with Lenny Pickett from Saturday Night Live. Have a good day, everyone. Wow. 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 Wow.